A message from the comical heathen. It's not always easy to recognize if someone you love has become a member of a cult. Here are some of the warning signs. If you notice they use the phrase, His Excellency, when referring to their television. If they say they're not getting vaccinated until after the playoffs. If their spiritual leader is a guru who can't spell guru. If they don't care for the music of the Beatles, but they like that sitar music that George Harrison did. If their preferred method of transportation involves livestock. If someone you love is demonstrating cult-like behaviors, direct them to the comical heathen. We could really use the followers. Welcome to today's episode of the Comical Heathen. Let's all get in and get a little heathen-y together. This is your host, the world's most highly educated stand-up comedian, Dr. Jerry Jaffe. And uh, welcome to this podcast, one man's wild and weird journey into the world of religious satire. And that man is me, and this journey is here, happening now with you. So thank you so much for coming along on the journey with me. Today's episode of The Comical Heathen, comedy icon. Uh, if you're listening to this podcast, you're probably already a fan. So I'll skip the lengthy introductions and just say that today's interview guest is Louis Black. So excited to be able to have the opportunity to talk to Mr. Black. If you're not one of the 12 people who listen to this podcast on a regular basis, let me give you a quick synopsis, rundown what I've been doing the past few years. I do stand-up comedy myself, and I'm currently writing a book about religious satire. And when I started working on this book, I used my connections in the comedy world to start interviewing various comedians that I knew or could get access to on the topic of religious satire so I could have the thoughts and ideas of people, artists who are really doing this comedy thing uh, incorporated both into my thinking about satire as well as into the fabric of the book itself. You know, let's hear from the artists and the, the experts with the practical experience. And when I started doing those interviews, it was pretty interesting, I thought. Um, you know, it combines two topics that are pretty popular in the podcasting and internet worlds of both comedy and religion. So I, as I was doing these interviews, I started recording them and sharing them. And thus, this podcast was born. To give you an idea of why I was particularly excited to have a chance to talk to Mr. Lewis Black, I, in fact, am quite far along in my manuscript, about 90% ready to turn it into my editor. And I have um, several pages and several sections in this book where I examine Mr. Black's examples of religious satire. And in particular, you may or may not remember this, or if you're a super fan, maybe you do. In 2002, Lewis Black did a Comedy Central Presents half-hour special, and it was actually... Uh, released as episode one of season six of that show. Because of the timing, it was actually the first new episode of Comedy Central Presents to be released after the tragic events of September 11th. And since my book is actually focusing on religious satire in the years after September 11th, I found 
Lewis's performance to be particularly relevant and poignant. He discusses religion from many different perspectives. And in his closer is a couple of minutes directly about September 11th. So that's the main reason that uh, Lewis Black is figuring into this book I'm trying to write. Because I discussed that episode and its place in the comedy scene and the satire world following the events of September 11th. We do discuss that episode, but in absolute 110% fairness to Mr. Black, that was 20 years ago. So we didn't do like a deep dive into the minutia of each little joke, but we do talk about that episode and what he remembers about it. And he did give me some insight into its creation that was very you know, helpful and interesting and helpful to my book. Just a couple other teasers of what you can look for in the interview is he does go through some of his influences as a satirist. He does answer some of the um, perennial questions that surround satire, such as, does it have a correctional function? Does it have any effect whatsoever? Is it just preaching to the choir? And he gives his take on satire and um, why it, he was drawn to doing it. Now, before I get to the interview, I do want to make a couple of announcements. Um, first of all, I just want to let people know that I myself have developed a one-man show based on this podcast, and I was just starting to do that show, you know, when uh, life in the world took an unexpected turn early 2020, uh, thanks to the horror of the coronavirus and the COVID-19 pandemic. So like most performers and most comedians and Mr. Black himself, you know, I've been laying low and I certainly had not done that show for many, many months, well over a year. Well, I have been accepted to contribute to the Kansas City Fringe, which is a fringe festival. This year, the Kansas City Fringe Festival is going to be all 100% virtual out of uh, deference to health and safety for the you know coronavirus concerns. So all of the contributing artists have been asked to provide a video of them doing their performances. So with that in mind, earlier in May, I um, shot a, a one-hour video of my performance, and I wanted to thank the audience members who came along, and I wanted to thank my friend Matt Sucher, who produced the actual video of it. It's in post now, but it looks and sounds really good. So I wanted to make that announcement that that is going forward. The Kansas City Fringe is happening at the end of July, and for several weeks, all the artist videos will be up for people to go and, and watch. So please consider checking it out. And I love any feedback. If the performing arts world slowly returns to more and more live performances, I expect to get it back out on the road myself by the end of this year, early 2022, you know, as soon as health and safety concerns makes it a reasonable you know, pursuit and passion project. If you follow me on Facebook or Twitter or Instagram, I will definitely be making announcements and sharing posts and links and things when the video becomes available. Besides that, if uh, this happens to be your first time listening to this podcast, I've been making episodes for about three years. I'm in the middle of what I'm calling season two. Please go back and check out some of the back catalog. I won't list all of the comedians or other writers or thinkers that I've been able to interview. Please take a look. They're all listed on our website. If you enjoy this episode, please consider looking at some of the other episodes as well. Also, this podcast is a uh, completely free, ad-free labor of love. It's available for free on all the major podcasting platforms. So please consider the possibility of making a uh, donation to support the production of this podcast. In the written description of this podcast, you'll see a, a link to a website that has my donate button. So any donations I get through that go directly to supporting the costs of this podcast. So thank you for considering that. 
Hey, I just want to let you know what our theme music is. I hope you enjoyed it. What you're hearing is my good friend Mark Bells, a um, world-famous touring organist, and he's playing the Bach piece uh, catalog BWV661 on the famous Skinner organ found on the campus of Lake Erie College in Painesville, Ohio. And then what we use is a remixed version of that, remixed by my very good friend Jeff Geddert. So thank you, Mark, and thank you, Jeff, for our original theme music. I love you guys. And then uh, finally, one other thing I just wanted to give you um, a little preview of. The season two episodes of The Comical Heathen have been including guest co-hosts that I bring on to talk about the interview subject and some of the topics raised and some things that are on my mind. For this episode, there is also going to be a guest co-host, but me and the guest co-host, we're going to save our segment to after the Lewis Black interview. Uh, We wanted to get to the interview as quickly as we could. We hope you enjoyed the interview. And then uh, if you are in the mood, please stay for the last third of this episode and in which my guest co-host and I will be talking about something I actually have not talked about very much on this podcast. Even though I said that I started this podcast because I'm writing this book, the podcast has always focused on the interviews and other just related topics and satire and whatnot. I actually haven't talked about the book that much. And uh, my few friends and the 12 people who listen to this podcast regularly have asked me questions like, what is this book about? When's this book coming out? So what I've done is I've invited my friend, audio engineer, musician, writer, Jeff Geddert, to be my guest co-host. He's one of my oldest friends. We've known each other for going on 30 years at this point. So if you're interested in religious satire or want to know more about the book that inspired this podcast, uh, hang out after the interview. Listen to me and uh, Jeff joking around and talking about the book. So now, without any further ado, please enjoy my conversation with Lewis Black. 2002, you did a Comedy Central Presents half-hour episode in which you discussed religion off and on, and also you do a, the closing bit was about September 11th. Because it was the uh, first episode of Comedy Central Presents after September 11th, and because mm-hmm. it featured, you know, you, as well as you discussing religion in different forms, you mentioned, uh, you know, the Super Bowl as being uh, a religious experience for you, and you talk about being Jewish, but then you do talk about September 11th. So it seems mm-hmm. to me this wasn't, shall we say, an accident. Someone must have said, let's have Lewis Black do this episode. <laughs> Actually, no, they're not that smart. <laughs> they basically said, you know, we, we're going to do a Comedy Central Presents, you want to do it. And uh, I can't even remember. I mean, there was there came a time when it was like, there, initially it was like, what's my half hour? And then it was like, okay, just do a half hour. So that was at the point where it was like, do a half hour, I think. One of the premises of the book is I'm just looking at comedy in the years after September 11th for like uh, people who talk about it or how kind of jokes are told about it, that kind of thing. Did you feel at that time, say the mid-2000s, that uh, religion or September 11th needed to be talked about? I had a very strange reaction. My reaction was that there was a lot of stuff that could be talked about immediately that I, um, for some reason, I was driven. Everyone, you know, everyone in the in a major public eye, like, uh, you know, the Daily Show was John, I was, I was on the Daily Show was John Stewart and uh, David Letterman. I just saw some stuff about it recently. And then, and the others didn't, didn't seem to want to, you know, seem to be, you know, didn't, didn't think America was ready for it. 
and I didn't, my reaction was I, I had to go do it. I, I better go somewhere and do it. And I was, because it was the only way I felt like I could do anything. I couldn't, I was living in New York city. I was not going to go down to the site. I'm worthless in terms of helping. I, I, I kind of knew that, that I wasn't going to be good at that. And it would kind of probably immobilize me. Uh, I, and I'd watched it out my window as it was, you know, I mean, I'd seen the, the smoke, you know, I could see the twin towers. I could see them smoking. So to me, it was getting on a, uh, I knew that I had a gig that in San Francisco Cobbs and that, that's what I wanted to do. And that was what I focused on. And I knew that that was the only way I could help. And I was watching stuff that was already, I felt needed to be commented on, you know, it was like, uh, you know, there was there were things that were not directly, you know, directly ab- ab- about what was happening, but all of this, the, uh, what was happening collaterally. You know, they, you know, you got a fire truck trying to get there, and there's six thousand, you know, journalists trying to tell a story. Well, they schmucks, you know, get out of the way and let the fire truck through. So there were things I was seeing that I, I thought that I could do, uh, I, I could uh, comment about. Apparently, I, W. Kamal Bell says, who was in the audience the night that I went to uh, San Francisco and did my show, I got there as quickly. I, I got there and and did the show. And he said, and I did it totally on the fly, much the way probably the show that I will do when I, except I'll have some of it prepared when I go back on the road again uh, in July. Um, you know, I, I just kind of, uh, he said it was, he, he's the only one I know that has some sense of what I, I did that night. I have none, <laughs> literally none. I just, I, I just let it rip for a half an hour. And, um, apparently he said it was really good, <laughs> but stupidly I didn't record it, which is sad. I would have liked to have known what it was that my reaction was, um, you know, now, not at the time, it didn't, it obviously didn't occur to me, but I, I just felt that that was the thing I had to do. I mean, that was really what I felt I could do. It was the one, it was the one contribution I could do. And I also felt that San Francisco was, if you're going to go anywhere in the country to do comedy, it was San Francisco, because San Francisco was already living ahead of the rest of the country. San Francisco had already kind of gone through uh, you know, San Francisco had a large gay community that they accepted and was a part of the, the the city and was part of the fabric of the city. They were already living 15 to 20 years ahead of most Americans, if not long, even if not further ahead. So in, in some sense, in my, you know, uh, you know, brain, it was that uh, I'm going somewhere where, you know, in on, on one level, 9-11 had already occurred in San Francisco, even though it hadn't occurred. You know, you know what I mean? It, they were already ahead of things. So it was. I felt comfortable out there. I know in the special, you make a point to say uh, that you survived tragedy through your sense of humor. Mm-hmm. So was that part of it, like the need to, to do a show or to get out on the road? Was part of your surviving the tragedy? That was really part of it, yeah. It was partly surviving it, and partly that was the only way I could help. I, mean, I just knew that that was the way I could help at that point. Our job at that point was... Uh, it was to provide some sort of, uh, you know, comic relief for people. People were talking about the end of irony. You know, people started saying, I forget who said it, someone, it may have been Grayson, Graydon Carter or someone said, you know, oh, this is the end of irony. I believe it's like, you know, what do you mean the end of irony? Most people, most Americans didn't even know what irony was. In your special, you did spend a minute satirizing Jerry Falwell. And according to the bit, 
Falwell was blaming people like feminists and pagans for the attack. <laughs> and then you just highlighted how ridiculous that was. Yeah. You know, those are the kind of comments that I'm noticing from my book, which is when people, when comedians satirize hypocrisy. Especially a Christian basically taking targets that allows the Christian to kind of have developed their power base. It's got nothing to do with Christianity. It's got nothing to do with 9-11. It's unbelievable. And I and the, my problem with Fowler was is that I watched, uh, I was, uh, I went to school at Chapel Hill, so... I would uh, we would drive down to from Maryland to where I lived to to North Carolina and we'd pass by this what was initially his church and I watched over the four years I watched the church become a college becoming bigger and bigger and bigger and big I mean it was like crazy so he always had become kind of a you know I thought wow this is like he was one of the first you know well they bought all of those guys Jerry Falwell Baker mm-hmm. the Bakers um, Jimmy Swaggart my favorite. Because he was really just the most, he, I really, he, he was crazy, but it was like, but I loved the, you know, his theatrical stuff was mm-hmm. spectacular. Yeah, um, speaking of hypocrisy, let, let me ask you just a couple of questions about uh, satire in general. Of course, you are known for your satire as well as your sort of angry stage persona. Do you have an approach to satire or, or what drew you to, to that? type of comedy? I mean, I don't really know. Partly, I mean, it was being born and raised around D.C. That kind of did it, you know, so that my local news was national news. You know, and that was when I was young. You know, I, I, I don't know why, uh, you know, how the, the you know, where the, the comedy came from, except that, you know, every year, every single year, there would be a picture of the state, the, the Capitol, building and there'd be a long shot and behind the, the capitol building with were, were, were what were considered the worst slums in the united states and just and it was every year and it was like these and all i thought these assholes look out the window they can see it and they do nothing about it and that kind of you know there was all of those little triggers that kind of you know i got nudged with uh, as a kid that uh, i think drove me in that way and my mother would walk around screaming about what was going on on tv and my father handed me a copy of catch 22 uh, or told me you know he was reading catch 22 and laughing and uh, he handed me that book I, he said you know you sh-, i said what is he said, should i read this I, it was, I, I would like it. I was like twelve or thirteen. He said, "Yeah, I think you, you, it's a really important book. It'll, t- it'll tell you how you, you know, really how to deal with the world, and especially if you're in, uh, if you have to, you know, work in the government." So, and that helped. You know, all of those things kind of contributed to it. I read, uh, you know, Vonnegut. Mm-hmm. You know, I started reading him there, and also Paul Krasner. Well, well he's really uh, he's passed away. He, he he wrote a magazine called The Realist. It's really uh, unbelievable. And I started getting that when I was 15. And uh, I, I forget how I stumbled across it. And Lenny Bruce, partly because of Lenny Bruce, I think he wrote the intro to the book. Somehow he had this monthly kind of printed on newsprint, this thing that would arrive at my house. I can't believe my parents let me read it. And it was really unbelievable pieces of satire. I mean, really uh, w- way over the line at the time. Mm-hmm. Like that was the week that was to the tenth power. <laughs> like all of the, you know, there was a he had a guy do a thing. It's in my. Uh, I finally got a copy of it. It was a, some a Disney artist did a did a, a whole panorama of all the Disney characters, you know, kind of uh, fucking each other oh, yeah. and or, or doing drugs and all of that. I don't right. know if you ever seen that. Yes, that I've seen. Well, that's that came that was in the Realist. Okay. Okay. And so I was reading that, and that had a, 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 a big effect on me. 
Well, that I mean, this, those those comics which I have seen, you know, that's the kind of going all the way. You know, it's like a committing to the bit, and that does seem to be, uh, you know, a, a staple of your comedy, especially with the angry persona. Like whatever you're reacting to or triggered by, you, you don't hold back. You take it all the way to, you know, the ridiculous conclusions you want to make. Well, I try to, and also, I mean, the my comedy in part is. Part of where I come from is is if it, that's I'm funny I'm funny funniest when I'm angry and that's the real what really why I'm angry on stage because <laughs> that's what people really you know started to laugh at they kind of went oh that's it so you discovered that on stage like when you did that on stage you got big reactions that angry no I got I should have realized it earlier because <laughs> I, my friends you know would laugh when I would get angry but I wasn't paying attention like most most comics. The hardest thing to do is to bring that kind of persona that you've got that is funny, but which is close to you onto the stage. It's just a hundred comics, you know, that you run across during the course of your life, especially early on. And you're sitting with them and you go, you're, you're, you're funny sitting here. And then you, you walk the 10 feet to the stage. You're not funny anymore. So what do you think causes that? I think it's the, basically that thing of wanting, you know, that you're, you're afraid of being, a, a, you know, you don't want to take that person, that persona of yours up there, you know, because if they don't like it, they don't like you. Right. It's, it's authentic, but it's risky. Yeah. And that's what makes comedy. That's the tension. Okay. In part. Christ, don't quote me on that. A billion <laughs> people. What do you mean? That's what makes comedy? Fuck you. No, right. it's not. But, but it contributes. Right. Yeah, well, I mean, trying to dissect comedy is like trying to explain what shades of yellow Monet used in a painting. Like, a painting's beautiful. You can't (laughs) analyze the shades of yellow sometimes. (laughs) Uh, Speaking of satire, another thing that is often said is that satire has a a, uh, kind of preaching to the choir quality. Like, if people agree with you, then they're on your camp. And if they don't agree with your premises, you know, then they might tune out. So do you do you feel there's like a preaching to the choir quality to your comedy or to satire in general? Uh, there wasn't until um until the the you know the the, the last 4 years. Oh. Then uh then it became a, a part of it. Uh-huh. It wasn't until um and it wasn't I wasn't really preaching to the choir. I was trying to find a way. I don't really like preaching to the choir because then what happens is if it's not funny then you get applause. Okay. That's preaching to the choir. When you get applause and not a laugh, and then I go, fuck, I don't need applause. I need a laugh. Then all of a sudden, with this division that has come over now, what, what, what really occurred was is it used to be easy because it was about a political, you know, if you part of, part of what I was doing, because I really have no fucking interest in these people, the, the, the politicians, you know, Except as they kind of come forth now and then, and then throw, you know, and then go on to something else. I mean, I'm mostly interested in what what they're do, how what they're doing affects those around them. Okay, affects us. Okay, so it's not so much what you know, you know, what they uh, what they what they say is 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 like the bills they pass, or or, or like this uh, insanity of um, the voting rights stuff. Mm-hmm. You know that they did in Texas or in Alabama or in uh, Georgia. You know, passing these laws that are clinically insane. You know, mm-hmm. you can't. You know, you can't carry a sandwich. That kind of shit. That that's the stuff that, that gets to me. When but was 
so we, but we, we, when we're when you're just talking strictly politics, you know, so strictly like um, like left or right, but really it's and, and those two words I hate. So let's say conservative and liberal, you know, and that that was the way it used to line up. So I could kind of thread the needle on that because if both sides were not making shit wasn't happening and it had a lot to do with both sides mm. not doing what they should be doing. The conservatives didn't do this, and the liberals didn't do this, and da, da, da. then along comes the last four years, and all of a sudden, we're not arguing over um, policy. We're arguing over reality, and now we're in a different thing, and that's – I don't know, and I literally – that I, you, then, then we ended another – that was a whole new land. So all of a sudden, there was a kind of a preaching to the choir if you agreed with one reality. And, it, and in part, I had to agree with one reality because there was like, you can't make shit up. You don't get to do that. Okay, there's a line you can't cross. So now you can't thread the needle now or you have to take... Well, I mean, it was they made it more difficult. Mm. If, you, if you've got to fucking argue facts, <laughs> this is the fact. Oh, no, it's not. It's the fact. It's difficult to thread a needle if you get, if you, you can't agree on what the fact is. I mean, philosophers would say that uh, satire is supposed to have a some kind of corrective function. That you've been doing this for you know several decades. Is there like an effect, a wider effect on from comedy into the world? No. <laughs> you know, it's like that's why uh, when people get upset with me, it's like, what, do you think I have an effect on anything, you assholes? <laughs> what a fact. Nothing has changed, you know, little it's it, it's in pieces. And, and they're, you know, and a lot of them are, you know, it's a lot of it now is, you know, you kind of kind of go, but it's going to change. And I got nothing to do with it. Other generations come and they kind of already get the point, you know, right. you don't have to make jokes about in a sense. There's a different kind of a joke that comes once uh, you have children that have been raised by uh, gay parents. As opposed to talking about when I did, you know, uh, 20 years ago when the joke was uh, on the list we, uh, of things we have to worry about. Gay marriage is on page is, is, on, is, is on page 50 after, on, on, you know, it comes after or, you know, comes after something we have to worry about is, is it, 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 like, it, you know, the, the one before it is, are we eating too much garlic as a people? <laughs> That's the joke then. The joke now changes. Children have been raised by it. They're normal. Okay, we've moved on. Some haven't, you know, and the, the jokes will still be made. But, um, but really, that, that, you know, that occurs because, you know, the, the thing has taken hold. Did that make any sense? Yeah, it makes a lot of sense. I want to think of this question of whether or not it's a helping or affecting or changing society. I always think of Mel Brooks has been making fun of Nazis for 60 years, and we still have Nazis. Like. <laughs> yeah. No, I think in the end, I mean, anyone that you've asked, I mean, anytime I hear John has been asked the question or uh, Colbert or some of the others, and uh, all I've kind of heard about it is, uh, you know, they, they all kind of say the same thing, you know, that, that you're, what you're really looking for is the laugh. Right. That's what drives you. Because you, first and foremost, you're a comic. So you're an entertainer. Colbert said something like that after he did the DC press dinner. Yeah. He was being praised for like taking shots at people. And his response was, all I wanted was a laugh. <laughs> yeah. 
Let me ask you a couple more questions just about satire. In general, if you were giving advice to a, a young comic or a young writer about satire, what, what would you tell them? Like, what do you, what do you need to do to do good satire? Well, I would not know. I, I really wouldn't know. I, I, I've never really consciously thought about it much. Mm. <laughs> it's, it's not something uh, I, I, I've thought about comedy. I mean, when I've taught comedy, I've, I never t taught it in the sense of, and, I may, and I've already, I've always taught the, the experience of being a comic. So I get, I, I, I basically, in, I, I get a group mostly of young actors. So this is what I used to do. And then meet them on a Monday and by Saturday night, I'd have them work with 10 actors and have them on stage doing three and four minutes. Okay. And so for me, comedy has always been um, as much as I might be doing satire. What I'm really trying to do is tell a story. That's always what is the driving force behind whatever I'm doing on on uh, my for what it's you know what my what, you know what I'm trying to do from the during the course of the year of coming up with the next special is trying to find out what the story is going to be. As as a writer, how do you go from um, I don't, observations or ideas to a story? I just, I, I mean, I put it together in a way, I, I fashion it in a way that I think allows the story to be told. So um, that's that's the way I look at it. I, you know, that this follows that, follows this, follows that, and that's how we end up here. And there's where the the ending is. And I mean, it's just that I'm, I'm not. It, it's just where it fits in certain things along the way. So I'm going to start again, you know, in July. And uh, I'd done this special that uh, I did at the last, it was kind of an accident. You know, I did this stuff, um, but, you know, I did the last performance was on March 13th in, uh, in 2020. And um, we got it on tape. We got it on, we, 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 you know, we had it on film and digital and I was able to, to make a special and I'd been working on it. And so essentially, you know, it was that, you know, I, the only thing that was added was like the first two minutes was really different from what I've been doing for weeks. And as I was doing that, the, uh, there was stuff that I had in my, in my act that didn't work with the other stuff. And it, it pulled it out. And that's the stuff I'm going to start with. And that'll be the basis of my next set. And I'll start working on that. So really, it was trying to find a way the whole the whole time that I was getting ready to do that special for the longest time was the first part of it was uh, from the time that uh, the new leader was elected when Trump was elected was trying to find a way to get the audience through that. We're not going to sit here and have a, a, you know, a battle over whether he should be about about him tonight. That's not what this is about. So it was finding ways to talk about what was going on. It's always been finding ways to talk about what's going on and keeping people entertained. Well, you also, you know, um, studied playwriting and have written many plays. Is there anything you've learned from creating narratives or stories for the theater? Well, that's what I think drives what I do. I think it was easier for me to be up there and telling that a story in that way than it was dividing it up into a group of characters. If, if somehow, uh, you know, I'd gotten more reinforcement and uh, I would have ended up doing that. But uh, it, it's a lot harder to do that, I think, but way, way harder. As tough as stand up is, at least for me. I'm, and I just think it is. You, you got to divide these. You know, it's a hell of a way to, to tell a story is through voices of a, of a number of characters. But one person telling the story on stage, not so different. So a lot of what I do is in part is here's the story. 
And here's another story. You know, here's the story of Amazon, which is our story. The story of like, you can't really, you know, I mean, that was the, the bit that, you know, the, the, the bit that got me through the, the, the whole thing was is that, um, that really kind of was the first bit that, that kind of got me out of uh, dealing with, uh, you know, that took people out of that whole thing, which is, you know, that we've, we have two day free shipping. You know, that when I was a kid, I'd get down on my hands and knees at night and pray to God, you know, let there please be two-day free shipping. And lo and behold, we have it. And if that doesn't make you happy, I don't know what does. I, I know that I threw away my Xanax prescription when uh, I knew that we had two-day free shipping. You know, here's something that everybody can kind of, whatever their line is on, however they feel about two-day free shipping, there is something mildly political about it. It's Amazon. It's this, there's that. There are all sorts of things we could discuss all sorts of touch points that we go into. But basically, it kind of puts us all in the same boat. We all want things to get there in two days, no matter what reality we would believe in. Right, and no matter what reality you believe in, it comes in two days. <laughs> yeah. It actually happens, so <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> unifies everyone as a, as a yeah. data point we can all believe in. <laughs> I always like to, to ask people when I have a chance to interview them, is there, has, is there a question you've always wanted to be asked that's never come up? Um, not, you know, uh, no, I, I don't really know. I mean, it's, it, it's always kind of, no, I don't think so. I mean, because people have a tendency to let me kind of rattle on, so, you know, like you've let me go, go off and you haven't interrupted. So I, I kind of get to, to really kind of cover enough stuff and, uh, and the, you know, if it may not, the question may not have been asked, but I've been allowed to say what the fuck I wanted to say, so it's hard to. So you've answered a lot you know. of questions that you haven't been asked. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And how about with just the topic of satire? Is there anything about satire that you think just should be said that isn't said, or that that we haven't discussed that you want to make sure gets said? No, just that it's uh, the only thing that you should know about satire is is that you should be able to, you know, you should be able to laugh at something. You know, even if you don't agree with it, if the joke is right, if, when satire is done properly, you should be able to laugh at something, even if you don't agree with it. And that was a lot of what always made me happy as a, as a comic, is that people would say, you know, uh, I don't agree with a lot of what you say, but you make me laugh. Because in part, you know, um, I'm experienced, my frustration that I show on stage is the frustration they have, even though their frustration is because they, they, what they want, they're not getting. And my frustration is because what I want, I'm not getting. And where we agree is our frustration. And you can't forget that. And that's, and there's, you know, and, and that frustration is where, you know, maybe the root of satire is. Satire is built in part on believing that this it, it can be better. That's that's the only thing I think I've got to say about satire. <laughs> you know, you, you did say uh, something very similar in that special back in 2002, because when you were talking about surviving through your sense of humor, you mentioned that when there's groups, whether it's like religious zealots or overly patriotic people, just any group that ceases to be able to laugh at themselves is when things go awry. Oh, yeah. There's the, yeah, that's the, <laughs> the ISIS. They lost their sense of humor. Uh, you mentioned you're going to go on the tour on, on tour later this year. Before we stop, uh, can you tell us about the tour or what we should be looking for? Well, I'll be in uh, Chautauqua to do my first show on 
July 26th. It's outside. It's about 25 much more than that's about an hour and change from Buffalo. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I'm there because I'm really kind of comfortable in that. Uh, there's a theater there. It's outdoors. It's, it's a, I've been on that stage a few times. I'm very comfortable to be there. I, it's really going to be, uh, you know, strange. Can I do a performance? That'll be the first performance. I'm not going to go to a club. I'm going to, I'm going to walk on stage. I'll do something that I've, you know, with papers and stuff. And, um, and I'm going to, you know, just kind of wing it. I mean, some of the stuff I'll have done, some of the stuff is from an old special, is from a, not an old special book, was from the special I was working on and drop. So some of it will be about, there was a thing, there was an article about uh, this couple in, uh, in a church and, um, and there, and uh, about guns and, uh, but it's a real story. It really happened. And uh, that's one of the things I'll be doing. And uh, I used it for a long time. And, pe- and now I get to do it again. And it, it applies more now than it did when I was using it initially. Well, I was going to say uh, religion and guns, gun yeah. culture. <laughs> yeah, no, well, it was, it was, he was in church and he had a, in Tennessee, and he had a gun. And he was doing a demonstration of um, gun safety. <laughs> and they they wanted to see it. And it went off. So it's just that kind of stuff. That's one of the things. Where, you know, that's a little tidbit, a little preview. Caesar. You know, and uh, and it's a real story, so you can't go, yeah, but no, you can't. Mm-hmm. It happened. So, and it's in a sense, uh, I worked uh, on that story for six months before the, you know, I dropped it out of the thing, and uh, and it developed into a very funny bit. But the uh, but what's really important is this. So I'll be there, and then I'm coming to. Hilarities in Cleveland. Oh, that's near me. Yep. I'll be there in September. And then from there, I, well, I'm going to go to Huntsville and then Hilarities and then Omaha and then, and then the tour. And then I go back into theaters. Okay. So I'll be playing clubs for the month of September. And uh, we can find all those dates on your website soon? That's the other thing I get to do today is to come up with my little social media video idea of, oh, this is funny. Let me go see my shows. Ha, 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 ha. So I've got to come up with something for that. If you have any ideas, please send them in. <laughs> um, but that's, and so it'll be, you know, I think by. Uh, Official tour announcement coming June 11th. Yes, I think. It could be the 10th, but it, it, I know that uh, I have one of those radio tours on the 11th. Okay. All right. Well, we've covered a lot of ground talking about satire. And I really appreciate your time. This has helped me a lot with my book, and I hope people enjoy listening to it as well. Uh, and well, I, I hope it helped. I look forward to seeing you in, in Cleveland uh, this fall. Well, I, loved, uh, I love hilarities, and I love Nick, so oh, I, I yeah. look forward to it. Yeah, Nick is great. One of the great clubs, for sure. It is. Yep. All right. Well, let me just uh, say thank you one more time, Louis Black, for spending some time with me. Pleasure, and good luck with it, and uh, I'll see you then. Thank you, sir. All right, well, that was my conversation with Lewis Black. Uh, thank you so much, Lewis, for doing that with me and and everyone for listening along. And now I'd like to take this opportunity to bring on to the episode today's guest co-host, my very good friend, Jeff Geddert. Hello you, there. Jeff? I'm very happy to be here. I'm the guest co-host, not the permanent co-host. I'm a temporary co-host. I'm just here for the moment, so don't get used to me. Don't settle back in your chair and think I'll be there forever because I will not. I'm going to go away. Maybe you'd like me to go away soon. Maybe that's what you're thinking right now. No, um, it's great to be here. 
as a comical heathen devotee, maven, and admirer. We've been collaborating in, in one form or another for multiple decades at this point, I would say. Across multiple millennia. Across multiple millennia. <laughs> That's true. No, it could, and it's it's cool. And I, let me let me just take a moment here to say that uh, what I dig about Jerry is that he just he gets up there and he takes a stab at it. He t- he throws something at the wall and sees if it sticks. Because I am not like that. I will sit here and I will perfect the final detail of every little project that I never get around to doing. <laughs> but you get off the freaking couch, get away from the TV, get off your ass, and you go out there and you do it. And I respect you for it. Well, they say perfection is the enemy of getting shit done. And I've definitely made a lot of shit in my life. <laughs> uh, I'm on the other end. This is good. And it's good. And this and it's interesting content there on the the overall comical heathen podcast, I dare say. I mean, I don't want to overstate things, but this is the best thing to happen to the United States of America since God, I don't even know when since back to what uh, Lincoln. Lincoln was a was was pretty decent. He was a good guy. You know, he had that stovepipe hat, right? Yeah. You got to give it up for any guy who walks out dresses, you know, dresses themselves and walks outside dressed as a kitchen appliance. Well, Ben There's Franklin is rolling in his grave. I mean, they, he's oh. saying I did not invent the stovepipe stove so you could oh. wear it as a fashion accessory. There we go. If Lincoln were around today, would he walk into an appliance store and say, um, can I get this in a black? <laughs> With this microwave balance on my head properly, you know. Exactly, he's yes. A, he's a modern man. <laughs> microwave, it's a whole new po- possibility of fashion for him. Hey, Jeff, so we just listened to my conversation with Lewis Black. What were your immediate takeaways, highlights? What stood out to you? Uh, that's a good question. Like the, the immediate takeaway is like, oh my God, it's Lewis Black. Because he sounds exactly like he does on The Daily Show or wherever else we've seen him. Um, he's got, he's, it's a, a distinctive voice, obviously, both in like what he's saying and how he says it. And it's super cool that you were able to have him on. And he's, he said a number of things that I thought were, were interesting. What about his commentary about uh, satire or comedy? Any of his uh, thoughts on satire uh, stick to your neural membranes? Why, it's funny you should ask, Jerry. I made a note of oh, this. This is a comedy he show. Says, <laughs> we'll see. Satire is built on believing that this can be better. And I'm like, yeah, that's true. That's interesting. That's there's an insight there. And when I heard that, it reminded uh-huh. me of a particular George Carlin show that I had or performance that I watched, sat down to watch later in his career. And I distinctly remember being in a bit of a bad mood at the time. And like, okay, I got to get my head out of this space. And I'm watching Carlin and I was not enjoying it. At that point in time, it just sounded to me like, well, he's just kind of bitching about all these things that are wrong with the world. Mm-hmm. But as Lewis Black says, satire is built on believing that this can be better. So we're pointing out the flaws so that we're aware of the flaws so that we come and do something about them. And subsequently, I did go back for the record and watch that Carlin and laugh my ass off. It was just <laughs> like me in a bad mood at that time. But it's an interesting kind of balance there about how things, you know, what the problems are and how we look at them. I, I, that's, he, what, I, that's what I think. What do you think? I mean, I would agree that that was a standout comment. I'll almost certainly turn it into a quote for my book. But it was also interesting to correlate that to another one of um, Lewis's 
comments, which is when I asked him directly about whether or not satire has like a corrective function or right. even just wider effects, he quite bluntly and hilariously said, no. <laughs> right. So there's like a tension there where like the satirist needs to have um, an apprehension that things can be better, but the execution of satire doesn't carry along like the baggage that doing comedy will be the way to make it better. Right. There's right. a kind of contradiction there. I don't know if contradiction is the right word, but well, maybe no, a contradiction like, I mean, there. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's at, at that point, I believe he mentions, I think, John Stewart or Stephen Colbert as saying that, no, the ultimate goal is to get laughs. And it's, they, they don't expect to change anything, or at least Lewis Black didn't expect to change anything. Oh. But what he oh. says here is that mm -hmm. satire is built on believing that this can be better. Mm -hmm. So it is satire. It is the act of being on stage and speaking about these issues. It can't just be because you believe things could be better. I think there's got to be some kind of kernel of hope that if not you yourself, what you're saying at that moment is going to make the world in any way a better place. At least through the act of discussion, we are at least able to move the conversation forward. Does that make sense? Well, even to create a conversation that society might be having a dialogue or conversation or should be having a conversation. And as a cultural mover or thinker, can you you know, create moments where those conversations can occur or move forward or happen at all or draw to people's attention things they're not addressing. Um, I do think, though, and again, this is an interpretation of what he said, so I don't want anyone to think I'm quoting or speaking for him. I mean, an uh, another part of the difficulty in assessing, you know, I don't know, like the social efficacy of satire is the relative slowness or fastness of social change. Mm -hmm. So I mentioned Mel Brooks has been making fun of Nazis for 70 years and we still have Nazis. Mm -hmm. So if you want to believe comedy can change the world, that's a pretty depressing way to think about it. Yeah. Yeah. What you were saying before about creating a, a dialogue or oh, that's interesting, Jerry. And it makes me want to, <laughs> it makes me want to ask you about your because you're a drama professor. I don't know if mm -hmm. it's public information. I think we can say that on the air. I don't know. Yeah, I think we can. Um, the Just idea never say of, the school that I teach at because I don't want to get fired. Okay. Sorry, Stanford. <laughs> the idea of starting, specifically the phrase you used was, was creating a dialogue, I think, right? Mm -hmm. And that's something I hear a lot in terms of, of theater, especially, maybe more so than stand-up comedy. I guess, how would you say that plays into your experience, either on the drama side or on the comedy side? Mm. So... Because I teach acting, comedy, and other theater classes and direct a lot of plays, I've acted in and directed over 100 plays on three different continents. Psst, I am hot. I do think that there are actually two different groups that the director is interacting with, the audience as well as the cast. Mm. And I think when you work with a cast, especially if you have the opportunity to work with actors as a teacher does, multiple productions over many years, then together you have a chance to create things, in, including potentially awareness of social issues, just what's going on in the world, not even political, left, right, atheist, mm -hmm. religious, mm -hmm. but just almost a consciousness that you need to have a consciousness as an artist. Mm. And then, but the audience, 
you basically get for two hours ever and how much effect can you hope to have in that regard? I mean, if they're talking about your play later that night over drinks, that's already oh. like a win. Like, because that's probably not okay. happening 51 plus percent of the time. I see. So in that sense, it's balancing whatever social issues you might think are important with an entertainment value. I remember, um, we're old, as we talked about earlier. I actually yep. remember when the album Artists United Against Apartheid came out. Well, okay. And, like, don't, I'm not going to play Sun City. Yeah. And the producer on that was uh, Little Steven. That's right. From Silvio. Silvio Dante. Correct. From Silvio produced that album. There's some trivia you don't get everywhere else, people. That alone should be worth a five-star rating. And he said, because he was trying to, he was the producer, so he's creating this high level of like uh, social consciousness music. And he said, I'm paraphrasing now, but this was the message I got from the interview with him. This first, is a direct quote. First, you need dance mu- music people can dance to. Mm. That if the first music need- isn't intriguing and, and enjoyable, then or else, social- or how else do you expect to capture a groove if you do not attack from the rear? Correct. So similarly, this comes back to the guys mentioned, including Lewis, Mm. where the laugh is the most important thing. I loved when uh, Lewis said uh, words to the effect of, if you're uh, getting applause, that means you're preaching to the choir. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, exactly. He was talking about applause versus laughs. Yep. I did make a note of that as well. I was thinking about that because this is something I want to ask Jerry. What comedian would you say has the highest applause to laughs ratio. I was, I was thinking a particular guy who has a Friday night show on, uh, HBO, Bill Maher. I see. It. I think this kind of the nature of success though, arguably is that you're successful enough that a lot of people want to come and see you and hear what you have to say and hear your jokes that just by the nature of, having gone through it and made a success of yourself, there will be a choir and you're going to end up preaching to them sort of whether you want to or not. Yeah, I can see that. And in, in Bill Maher's uh, example, and I um, am writing about him in my book as well. In fact, he is probably the leading comedian who represents what I write about in this book. He himself has spoken about as a young comedian, he might do jokes about religion, but it was about being raised Catholic and almost more just like roasting, like silly or little jokes. Mm. And then later, like by the time he gets to Religulous or Real Time, he has made a conscious decision to really like deconstruct, if not attack, religious hypocrisy. Mm, certainly. And so, but that moves him more into a camp of almost activism, right? He's not just making jokes about religion. He's making points about religion <laughs> in the guise of jokes. Yeah, yeah. He certainly has things that he wants to say. It's it's he, it's not just for the laughs. There are ideas that he wants to have out there and considered and hopefully, you know, mentioned at at dinner afterwards as you said earlier. Now, Jeff, you have uh, assisted me with uh, this podcast and uh but you have never seen the live version and when Lewis Black said that thing about, you know, you want laughs, not applause. And I wholeheartedly agree with that, by the way. But I just filmed 
mm-hmm. my a video for a festival of the live show of this. And there are at least uh, three or four applause breaks in that. As a comedian, you get a pause okay. break. You think, oh, that's so great. Hey, they love me. And I'm thinking, oh, yeah, they didn't laugh. So, <laughs> Is that what it is when you stand on stage and the line goes out and they don't laugh, but you get the applause, you feel the love, but it's bittersweet because not exactly the reaction you were looking for, but it's the, I, I don't know, I'm trying to, to picture what, what it's like or imagine what it's like. Well, because um, I teach comedy classes, I want to make a, a separate but related point. Some Something every comedian has to decide for themselves is if other reactions besides laughter is acceptable. So, mm. you know, like if you tell a bad joke and people groan, mm-hmm. some comedians will say, oh, I, you know, that, that is a groaner. I want them to groan. Or some comedians will say, well, at least I got a reaction. You know, I know I'm affecting them. Mm. And I, I would say... <laughs> No, you don't want them to groan. You want them to laugh. <laughs> if they're not laughing at your joke, then you need a new joke. Mm. That, that's my free advice in take it mm. or leave it. But in that sense, I do think anything other than a laugh is a compromise or a dodging the question. And an applause break is actually the hardest nut to crack because who wouldn't love an applause break? You've just said something super clever and super important and the audience is with you. So how They've can you got not love your that? back? How can you not love that? Uh, so another thing that uh, that stood out to me that Lewis Black said during the interview there was he doesn't like the words left and right, and then he went on to use liberal and conservative. And I'm thinking about well, what's the difference there? I'm like, oh, actually, there is a difference because you know historically liberal and conservative are two like ideologies or philosophies or ways to approach an issue and maybe hopefully make it better. Mm-hmm. Left and right as descriptors, as way of talking about who's on what team and what flag they're waving, mm-hmm. those are, by definition, the existence of left is the absence of right. So they're just completely diametrically opposed. And if that's your your framing, if that's your mindset when you approach an issue, the chance that you're going to come to some sort of a compromise that works for, for both sides seems less. So I thought that was a, a good insight. I want to make sure we mention at least one other thing while we're, we're together and talking about this interview. And this is something that's pretty like directly germane to the book I'm writing, which is the book I'm writing is, in a really small nutshell, about religious satire after September 11th. Well, I'm going to put that on the shelf with all my other books about religious satire after September 11th. Uh, so in that special from 2002, Lewis Black does talk about September 11th, which that's fresh then. It's just a few months afterwards. So we get that. But he, he did make that point about how um, zealots have lost the ability to laugh at themselves. Mm. I thought that's a, lost, a nice and interesting have lost point the ability to raise. or never had the ability. Sorry. No, no, that's a fair question. I mean, I don't know. I just like hearing that off the top of my head. I'm like, well, like as if you say a zealot who lost their ability, you know, it used to be a lot more fun as a zealot. Again, you know, in real life, there's a lot of gray, so we shouldn't paint everything in black and white. Like no baby is born a zealot. So people yeah. are or a racist. You have to be taught this shit. Right. So it's a little bit of like a definitional thing. Like if you still have the ability to laugh at yourself or your in-group, then you're probably not a capital Z zealot yet. But mm-hmm. if but if you've crossed into a mentality where you there's simply 
no ability left for you to laugh at your own self or your own group, then you may be a zealot. That's part and parcel of or the package, the definition, the idea of a zealot, of a religious leader, of a political leader who can't laugh at themselves or at their situation or at the absurdity of something that's happening. They take things overly seriously and they use that as a sort of a psychological tool when interfacing with other people to demand a certain solemnity when they are being dealt with not just a seriousness but a solemnity and that they a, a reverence comes out of that i just got my my thesaurus well mr gaddert i think uh we've boiled this egg as, as about as hard as we can get it so um before we uh, wrap up, anything else you want to uh, say about the interview or Lewis Black or satire? What I want to say about Lewis Black is that I miss seeing him on The Daily Show, and I miss The Daily Show. And I'm, I don't know if I can subscribe to Comedy Central's thing from Japan or whatever hoops I have to jump through. But by God, there was back in the day when Jon Stewart was doing it, he was doing it right. I love Trevor Noah, and I can't think of anybody else who would have replaced him. And I think Trevor Noah was doing a bang-up job. But by God, I'm old, and I miss the old Daily Show. Yeah. Well, Jeff, before we sign off, I would like to take a moment and thank some people. First of all, I want to thank Lewis Black for being our interview subject for today's episode. Thank you, Lewis Black. I want to thank you, Jeff Geddert, for being my guest co-host. Uh, I'll let you know how the audition worked out for you. My Rock and roll. Lawyers will be in touch with your agents. I want to thank anybody who's taken the time to make it all the way to the end of this episode. I really appreciate you. Please, if you enjoyed the interview with Lewis Black or enjoy this podcast, please like it share it, leave comments, go to the YouTube channel, anything you can do. We really appreciate you. And if you want to uh, write in, our email is comicalheathen at gmail.com. So we'd love to hear from you. Any comments, questions, concerns, uh, feel free to email anytime. Uh, Jeff, at the top of the show, I yeah, actually... You didn't ask if I have anything I want to promote. Hey, Jeff, you have anything you want to promote? No, I don't have anything I want to promote. Not at all. Not a damn thing. I'm not on Instagram. I don't do the Twitter. I don't the TikTok is is a UFO to me. I'm just here because I love you and I love the show and I want to do this. So for everybody out there in the greater Cleveland area who would have benefited immensely from having their name associated with a program that Lewis Black was on. Sorry, suckers. I was considering auctioning off your position on eBay. It would be the only time this podcast ever generated uh, revenue. Hey, I yeah, so email us if you have any questions or comments or if you want to find out more about none of the things that Jeff isn't doing. And, uh, <laughs> Very hey, busy schedule. and I, I actually, because I love you and organist Mark Bell so much, I actually gave you a little love at the top of the program. So I appreciate that, guys for as always. And then also, I like to sign off every episode with this thought. It may be your dogma, but it's my karma. And I'm all about spreading the love. <laughs>